Well, hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast. This is episode 207, and today on the podcast, I'm excited just as much as you to see exactly all the places we end up going to, because I feel like this one is actually one of those, like, um, it's almost like a fruit salad, you know what I mean? It's like, man, we got some bananas in there, we got some strawberries in there, we got a little bit of some kind of whipped cream in there, we've got marshmallows, like, all sorts of stuff is going to be in the podcast today, because I feel like in some ways it's a bit of a mind dump for me, and uh, I hope by the end it kind of resolves in some ways, um, but I'm not even sure that's going to happen, so what an exciting journey to see if I can even land the plane by the end of this whole podcast. And so this is kind of one part looking at a challenge that Jesus has in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21, and another part is looking at the deconstruction culture, and another part is looking at um, Joshua Harris as a part of the deconstruction culture and a course that he's now offering in relationship to it, and then it kind of snaps back to Christianity at large. I think about John MacArthur. How did he suddenly come into this? Like, so much stuff all in one location at one time. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you are welcome for me having a mind up today. So we're going to see where this goes. Now, uh, kind of the place this started for me is actually I was reading an article this last week that uh, was was referring to how now Josh Harris. Now, let me back up for a second. Let me stop because maybe some of you are like that name means nothing to me. So Back in the day, back in the 90s, and this slightly bridges back into what we've been dealing with for the last month plus on the podcast, but back in the 90s, Josh Harris was a young man, 21 years old, writes a book that becomes a bestseller called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Um, Now, this is less about that book, but that kind of put him on the map of evangelicalism as far as like an up-and-comer young guy that everybody wanted to listen to because clearly he was... um, in tune with kind of the, the the tone of the day, all of the right components came together at just a, such a moment that he wrote that book, and it was really popular among homeschool families, things of that nature. In fact, uh, at that point, I was in my 20s. I was a lead pastor in a church, uh, a church that was made up of a lot of homeschoolers, and that book was the book. That became the roadmap for how you trained your kids uh, to be brought up in the things of Christ as it pertained to marriage and sexuality, things of that nature. So that was Josh Harris. Eventually, he becomes uh, a pretty big deal in Sovereign Grace Ministries, which was sort of a church network, became the lead pastor in behind the guy that started Sovereign Grace Ministries, uh, and then the church went through just a series of really ugly things. It was shown that uh, Sovereign Grace had the same kind of problems as Mars Hill when it came to abuse of leadership and power and things of that nature. Then on top of it, the flagship church where Josh was at, where he'd come in behind the guy, C.J. Mahaney, who had started Sovereign Grace Ministries, uh, they had a big kind of um, sex abuse scandal surrounding all of that. And so from all of that, Josh decided to resign his position at the church, go to British Columbia to go to seminary up at Regent. uh, And then during his time at Regent, sort of had a deconstruction moment, decided he no longer identified with the label Christian. um, And that's kind of been that way now for maybe a year and a half or so, something of that nature. And then just in the last week, he has now released um, a uh, kind of a... I don't know, a course, if you will, that 
in Christian circles are saying, oh, this is just Josh Harris making money on a deconstruction course. So how to deconstruct your Christian faith for $275, right? So that's kind of what it was cast as. What Josh is casting it as is the reformation of your story. So in other words, he's looking at people who are maybe struggling with the borders of their Christian faith and saying, here's a course to help you work through where you put those borders, why you put those borders, uh, what it is you think you need to let go of, what it is you need to retain, what is the damage that's come from your Christian faith? What are the good things that have come? I think it's more of that nature. So I haven't ordered the course or anything like that, so I can't give you the depths of it, but I certainly went to the website, kind of read through some things, and kind of went from there. So that's Josh Harris, right? And so I've, I've been interested then in this this idea of this kind of re- articulating, re-understanding your story. And what he means by that is, again, your your Christian expression. Like, you know, do you need to rethink it in some ways? That's, again, the, the tone of what he's doing, right? So from that, then, for the last week or so, I've been spending a little bit of time um, just trying to trace back through his deconstruction. And I'm doing this in part because I do think we're in a climate right now that there is a lot of deconstruction, but I don't think it's monolithic. In other words, I don't think it's as binary as you're either a Christian or you're deconstructed. And by deconstructed, it's like you have pulled out every innard of your Christian faith that lays bare on the table, and then you just shoot it all with a flamethrower and burn it to a crisp. Like, I think that's the way people hear deconstruction is they say, it's either all or none. You're a Christian or you're now an atheist. And and that's why I've been curious, because as I continue to interact with people from my past, from my present, I watch some people on social media and certain conversations that I'm having with individuals, what I'm finding is there's a lot of bandwidth in this. In fact, so much so, then this is one of the interesting components. I find that some of the most solid, well-rounded, thoughtful evangelicals of my life are in part that because they deconstructed. So in other words, they deconstructed their legalism background or they deconstructed their a certain type of rigidity that this denomination is the only denomination or this approach to Christianity is the only approach to Christianity. And so weirdly, there can be deconstruction that is incredibly helpful, right? That gets you back to the gospel. And then there's other deconstruction that leads you completely out of the Christian faith and completely away from God. So there is a range in this. And I think we want to be sensitive to that, that there is in fact, perhaps good deconstruction. And then there is maybe quote, destructive deconstruction. And that is all on a sliding scale within that. Now, part of what's also made me think about this as it relates to Josh Harris and creating this course and everything else is I just finished up a class through Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. That is my continuing education track right now with that particular seminary. Uh, and I just finished a course on historical theology. So and in, instead of it being like a study of the history of the church, it was a study of the development of theology throughout the history of the church. Now, some of this class was a little limited. And that, frankly, where I think its weakness was, is it didn't consider the Eastern Church, because that's just something we don't do. One of our biases is, especially as Protestants, is we had a, fa- a fight with the Catholics. So oftentimes we teach theology and Christian history more in relationship to the Western Church uh, and how we had the, the great divide with you know the Protestant Reformation and everything else. And we completely forget the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Coptic churches, things of that nature, which is a real crime because it just shows, again, sometimes 
that the world revolves around you, whether you mean it to or not. And that is even true to church history. We let it revolve around us. We let it revolve around our schism, our breakaway from the great beast. And and then there's this whole other half of Christianity that we almost know nothing about. Um, and yet that's maybe what I'm thinking about here a little bit, that over the course of the development of theology throughout Christian history, there's been a number of moments of deconstruction. Um, if anything, if you look at Martin Luther and you look at the Reformation, all that was is a moment of huge deconstruction. He looked at his church and he says, this can't be right. Indulgences can't be right. And from that, it led him into, wait, this understanding of, of works and salvation, that can't be right. There's got to be more to this story. And he so massively deconstructed his understanding of Christianity and faith that, that literally he started a new version of Christianity, right? Like that's how bold that was, right? And, and it was ugly. It was painful. It was hard. It was incomplete. He was imperfect in the context of that. Uh, but that's what happened. And then what happened out of that was a whole farm system of deconstruction from there, which is why we have Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists and non-denominationals. And we have Seventh-day Adventists. And, you know, when you start to look at the, all the little forks in the road, we have the Episcopalians and, and that doesn't even factor in all the other little micro groups that exist out there, right? And so all of those things are actually moments of deconstruction where you're looking at Christianity as you understand it. And then you're saying, well, wait, there's some problems here. And we need to address those problems fairly, honestly, and accurately, and then refine that to be more pure, more godly, more wholesome, whatever label you want to use with that, right? So that's the process there. And so maybe in part, I wanted to start off with that a little bit because I do think right now there is this reactionary thing we have, right? So it's kind of all or none. The, the idea that there can be a nuance in there where you're like, that's the good and that's the bad inside the thing. And I see the good and I see the bad and I try to move forward. Like that's a much harder thing to do. We'd rather just pick a camp, right? Like I joke about this. We'd rather pick your conservative or your liberal. You believe in critical race theory or you think it's an abomination of the devil. You know, just any number of things. You know, you're for Trump or you hate his guts. It's just the list goes on and on and on where we run to the furthest corners on this spectrum of ideas as opposed to trying to figure out the nuanced things in there. And to even be honest as we look back and think, man, has this been true to us before? And is there good things to pick up in there as well as some bad things to discard, right? So, so maybe just starting there with deconstruction as we talk about some of this, I want to be cautious that we don't say we have to pick a side. You believe in it or you you oppose it. Because frankly, some of the best parts of Christianity have come because people deconstructed it. And some of the ugliest parts are because people had deconstructed it too. So so again, we want to have some clarity on that front, at least, or at least some honesty about that. That's one thing. The second thing, and thinking about this history of theology course, and then thinking about Josh Harris, and then eventually I'm going to pull in John MacArthur to all of this. But in there too, I, I was thinking about how how much in the process sometimes of the deconstruction that can be good, there can come a dogmatism out of that that is bad, right? And so it's, we deconstructed, we figured out the truth, and whoever came before us was wrong, and now finally, after 
1,500 years, now finally after 1,750 years, now finally after 2,025 years, we're right. We nailed it. Our group is the in-group. Every other group is the out-group. And so there becomes then in this, this sense not only of we we finally, after a long period of time, solved the real essence of Christianity, but in that, and we are proud because we solved the real essence of Christianity. In fact, I saw a great meme recently where it kind of shows the birth of the church on this big org chart, like a big flowing chart. So imagine over to the left, it's like Jesus. And then off that, you have a line that forks in two directions. And it's kind of like maybe the Eastern church and the Western church. And so the church under Peter versus the church under James. And then those fork off and those fork off. And you get this constant forking effect going off where it keeps breaking off and breaking off. And so by the time you get all the way over to the right, there's like a thousand little lines of all of these forked breakoffs, right? Just like kind of the, uh, the March Madness bracketing system. And then it shows this guy circling one of those thousand little lines and he goes, here we are true Christianity today after 2000 years, right? Just discrediting the other 999 offshoot break off lines. And, and I think that's the danger in there. So there becomes this, we finally solved it. Everybody who came before us knew less than we know now. And we are more uh, holy and accurate and truth centered than anybody else. That brings me then to something with John MacArthur, where it was interesting because I cut my teeth on John MacArthur. Um, I have his commentaries in my library. I still think that they are some of the most useful tools when it comes to, um, you know, kind of looking at the text and everything else. But I was thinking about it, and, and maybe to go a step further, my faith became serious by a book he wrote called The Gospel According to Jesus. I read that back in, I think, 1991. And from that, I became very passionate about my faith. But in that too, I became very legalistic in my faith, right? Because I went down that road of John got it more right than all the other churches in the modern era. His understanding of lordship salvation is more biblically accurate than anybody else. And and so I really saw him as my mentor, his group as my tribe, and with that, there was this hubris that like, you know what, the Arminians get it wrong, the Charismatics get it wrong, the secret churches get it wrong, you know, and, and so the, the pride level there of like, I know the truth, I've got it figured out, this guy is the guy worth following, and he's so certain, he has so much conviction, um, all the more, I'm going to, I'm going to run down this road and I'm going to hold these values as, as dear, right? So I did that for a long time. And in the context of that, man, I I hurt a lot of people. I, I, I ran over a lot of individuals. I beat a lot of sheep because I was so certain that that vision, that one little line of a thousand after 2000 years is the way that to do this. This is the one singular truth, the true expression of the Christian faith. And, and in that, there was just so much arrogance involved. But in the name of truth, that I just didn't even see because I'm like, man, my job is to defend the truth, to preach the truth. You don't like the truth? Too bad. It's like black hot coffee. You either swallow it or spit it out, right? Like that's how clear it was in my mind until I went through some deconstruction. And I'm like, wait a minute, what, what's the essence of the gospel? What's the essence of Jesus? What is the essence of the biblical narrative? What is the essence of what we should truly embody if we're truly transformed by this truth 
of the Bible, right? So there was just this series of things where there was deconstruction. And so often what happens in deconstruction is then you kind of swing the opposite direction. And so I swung the opposite direction. I sold off all my John MacArthur commentaries. I was like, that dude is just way too arrogant and proud. And I was kind of done with him for a while. And then over the course of time, I kind of swung back around a little bit more. I'm like, okay, now I can see the nuances. The commentaries are great. Some of his commentary in society, not so great to me. You know, like I could find some blend and balance in there and everything else, right? That's kind of what I did with that for a while. So now I'm going to get to like maybe the, the center of what that I'm getting at today as I bring those worlds together as far as like some deconstruction's good, some deconstruction's bad. Uh, here's a guy that I looked at and, and really was just like hardcore truth, hardcore Bible. I embraced that wholeheartedly. I did a lot of damage to people in the process. Then I kind of deconstructed that, found what I think is maybe a center and everything else. Uh, and then I've continued to do life and do ministry and work through things and face problems and see realities and all of these different things kind of coming together. And and that then brings me to this question then of looking at all of that mess. Like I said, it's a fruit salad of what constitutes true Christianity and what would a true Christianity most look like? And then from that, what are the things we should most value in the context of this expression of the Christian faith and are we doing that? And and part of that is I, I think in there sometimes we have some some biases, either obvious or latent, that attribute a value system to then how we understand and express Christianity. And I guess the question I'm raising today is are those in line with what we tend to see in our founder or are those in line with this notion of what we perceive to be truth? Or even in that, uh, how we see truth as being most guarded or played out? Now, I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer all of those in this podcast in that, again, this is a stream of consciousness, fruit salad kind of thing. But maybe here's what I'm getting at. Um, as I was thinking about John MacArthur, I was watching some content of his this last week. And, and I remember as I was reflecting on it, I go, here is a person that I have looked at for a very long time as a person that would be iconic for elevating the truthfulness of Scripture and the truth of Scripture and the need to get Scripture accurate. And there's always been a very um, certain tone with John MacArthur that he's getting it right, right? That he and... Uh, the, the people that come through Master Seminary and the people that kind of run in his theological circles, they're getting it right. And so what I found myself plagued by as I was listening to him in this particular clip is I'm like, so the people that get the truth most right, what should be the fruit of that? Is the fruit of getting the truth most right, is it conviction? Is it uh, academic accuracy? Is it the ability to uh, show a cogent relationship between all of the components of Scripture so that you can build an airtight case for every topic on every issue and show how all things theological uh, integrate into a single cohesive picture? Is that going to be the way you know somebody most has nailed the truth? Or is there something else? To me, there's something else. And that's maybe what struck me as I was watching this thing of his, which 
was less about him talking about scripture and it was more about a number of societal issues right now, kind of cultural issues where the Bible doesn't directly speak to that. And he was kind of sharing his personal take on it with as much conviction on that as there would be about anything he would teach out of the Bible. And I remember I thought, here's a guy that I feel like really knows the truth, but I more and more struggle to hear Jesus in there or to see Jesus in there. So there was this tone of truth, but the absence of grace or the absence of humility or the absence of sensitivity, the absence of um, compassion or kindness in this thing. And then I started to reflect on it more. And I'm, I'm wanting to be really cautious here because what it's going to sound like what I'm doing now is like, oh, you're judging John MacArthur. And Jesus says, do not be judged lest you be judged. And and so I want to confess that there may be some of that in there. My my intention is not to judge. I'm trying to, to kind of coax out of this what it was I'm trying to work through and understand. But I go back to this idea even of that passage in Matthew 7 as far as the, the idea of, um, you know, uh, do not judge lest you be judged. Deal with the log in your own eye so you can deal with the splinter in your brother's eye. And even that comes to this idea that, you know, the spirit of not judging isn't that you don't discern a thing, but it's how you end up doing it is you want to do it with kindness and compassion and understanding. And you want to learn from that in such a way where you go, I don't want to duplicate the mistake and I don't want to be a log person dealing with specs. I want to be a person that tries to deal with my logs so I can lovingly deal with other people's specs. But then in that, that kind of is part of the lesson, which is as we, as we explain or display or protect the truth, what should be obvious is We've dealt with our planks and we want to deal with other people gently trying to to softly bring out a small speck in their eye, not bludgeon them to beat the speck out of their eye, right? And so maybe that's what I started to realize. I'm like, man, if we are most accurate with the truth, we should then be most generous with our dispositions. We should be most gracious. We probably won't sound like an Old Testament prophet, but we'll sound much more like Jesus to the masses. We will sound like Jesus to the, the broken because we know what it was like to be broken and be rescued by Jesus. Like that would be more it. Or we would be so in tune with the truth, the spirit would be running wild and free in our life. And if the Holy Spirit is running wild and free, it's going to be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, right? Like, honestly, the truth should lead us to spirit surrenderedness and spirit surrenderedness should look like the fruit that he displays. And if we don't seem to have an obvious display of those fruits, but rather we sound like we have such conviction that it comes across as pride or arrogance or callousness or abuse or whatever else, that is as far from the spirit as you can be while still proclaiming the truth. And that's not a foreign thing to the Bible. In fact, when I think about the Gospels, so often the reason I am certain that the writers of the the Gospels spilled as much ink as they did about religious leaders is because they knew that Christians would be tempted to become like the religious leaders. Like, that's why they're writing it. They're writing it to Christian communities, and they're not writing it to to lost people. The Gospels were written to Christian communities, and I think all four of the Gospel writers knew, like, man, if there's any temptation that's going to be there for this community, it's going to be to love the truth at the cost of living out the truth. It's going to be to defend the truth at the cost of the grace that is embedded in the truth. And if anything, we got to make sure that they keep in mind who this religion's all about, that it's not about the book, and it's not about their system, and it's not 
about their creeds. It's about a person named Jesus who displayed to the world, this is how you love the world so much you give yourself for it. This is how you love broken people. You come in to rescue both broken people by being a healer to the broken, not by being a condemner or a slammer of the broken, right? Like all of that is just true to the story. And so from this, I'm going like, wait, if we're going to be people of the truth, if we're going to say we really got Christianity right, we are going to look like Christ. And we're going to look like Christ in attitude, action, and affection. And if those things are not true of us, then it's not that the truth is wrong, but it's us understanding the truth that is wrong. And in that, we're using the truth in wrong ways. We're using the truth as a weapon. We're not using the truth as a medicine. Because if the truth is a medicine, then we know that we're sick. We need the medicine to heal us. And if we're truly getting healed, we're going to display something very different than what you see in religion. Because that's what I realized. I was listening to John and, and I'm like, this sounds exactly like the religious leaders of the New Testament. They believe they had the truth. They were defending the Old Testament. They had a lot of extra rules to defend the Old Testament. And when I was thinking about my history of theology class, so often that was the case. It's like we have this discomfort with the Bible sometimes, I think, as as human beings. And that is that God gave us a book that is wild, it's organic, it's confusing, sometimes it's beautiful, sometimes it's ugly, sometimes it's bewildering, sometimes we read it and we go, man, that inspires me. Other times we read it and we're like, I don't even know what to do with that thing. I don't... I don't think I've ever wanted to boil a goat in its own mother's milk. And so I don't think I'm going to have a problem keeping that law. You know, like, I don't know what to do with it, though. And there's some funny stuff in there about private parts that I don't even have a clue what to address there. And and then there's other things that ask me to do things that I go, that doesn't work in the real world. Like, you know, again, if somebody sues you, give them more than what they sued you for. Like, that doesn't work. You got to take up your, your own mantle. You got to get an attorney. You got to stand up for yourself. Like, Jesus, come on, bro. You know, like, there's so much stuff in this wild, crazy, organic, bizarre book that that I think God kind of gave it to us at that level so that we would wrestle, that we would be dependent, that we would pray all the time, all throughout the day, God, help me to do this crazy thing you gave because it is so rich in the essence of what life is all about. But we want to take that book and we want to strip it down to the studs and then categorize it into a systematic system. And then in the systematic system, we want to say this system is the right and only system and all other systems are broken in comparison to this system. And therefore, we want to go ahead and judge or be harsh with others because we have come up with a system where we dismantled the Bible into all of its aggregate parts, combine it into our image and likeness, and then we use it as a weapon against others, as opposed to let it be what it is, which is a book that says, you know what? You know less than half of everything, especially even how to read this thing sometimes. And therefore, we need to be reliant on the Holy Spirit. We need to be reliant on on Father God to teach us and guide us in these things. We need to be reliant on Jesus by saying, Jesus, I'm going to use your life as the as the benchmark of my life and what I see modeled in you, I want to do because I know if I model you and I do what you do and I think like you think and I act like you act, that's getting me way closer to understanding what this book is truly all about. That's when I'm guided into the truth, when the truth sets me free, when the truth shapes the way I'm to be in this world. And by that, what I mean is the truth should shape us to be like Jesus because the word is more than the book. The word is the person of Jesus. And if I'm listening to the word that is Jesus, I'm watching the word that is Jesus, then I'm going to have a whole lot better grip on the book, right? So 
Hopefully that rant made some sense there. But that's what I've been thinking about more and more. Like, what is the essence of truth? What is the essence of following Jesus? What is the essence of doing this thing well? Again, it ends up looking like him. It ends up thinking like him. It ends up with the tone of him. It ends up with the tone of the Holy Spirit. It ends up with life and peace because we've set our mind on the spirit. The weirdest thing in Romans chapter eight, when he talks about that, is he talks about the mindset on the flesh and the mindset on the spirit. I think it's important for us to understand that you can have a fleshly mind that defends biblical truth, or you can have a spirit mind that defends biblical truth. And the difference between those two is radical. It is radical. Because a fleshly mind that defends the truth will use the truth as a weapon against a lot of people. A fleshly mind that holds on to the truth is a dangerous thing because it will be destructive with the truth. Um, and that is the story of religion. As I took this religion course, it was amazing how many times it was theology and truth used to control or abuse people. Or even recently listening to the Mars Hill, Fall of Mars Hill podcast, it was the same thing. Like if I look at Mark's theology, if I look at the theology of Mars Hill, um, uh, certainly we could all quibble about, you know, reform theology and things like that. But here was a place that like, we're taking the Bible seriously. We're going to fight for the Bible. We're going to die for the Bible. We're going to make sure that people understand the Bible's a big deal and we want to make a big deal of it here. And yet there was tremendous abuse and justification of the abuse through the truth. Right? That's the most bizarre part, but that's what I'm saying. The danger is the fleshly mind will use the Bible as a weapon to justify abusiveness, to justify callousness, to justify not loving our enemies, to justify not loving our neighbors, to justify our own self-interest, our own selfishness. That's not a hard thing to do. That is the history of Christianity. But when Christianity is, quote, at its best, is when it's way more about being Christ than anity. I want to say that again, when Christianity is at its best, it's it's at its best when it's more focused on being like Christ than it's anity. But I think too often it's easy to default to anity because you can systematize it, you can codify it, and then you can hold other people accountable to the thing that you've created, oftentimes in your own bias, your own image, or with your own agenda. Now in that, we defend that. We say it's all in the purity of trying to keep the truth, but the purity of keeping the truth is letting the truth frame you in such a way you look like the one who gave you the truth. And that is Jesus, right? That is Jesus. And that's a place we don't have to look far. I mean, that's probably why I like the gospel accounts as much as I do, because there are parts of the Bible that are really hard. Like, honestly, just very hard. You read Judges and you're like, that's some hard slogging, man. It's just hard. Leviticus is now one of my favorite books, but that's hard slogging right there. Revelation, that's a tricked out book, man. Like, what do you do with the book of Revelation? It's just a, a tricked out book. But the Gospels are Sunday school simple. And I think by design. And if we just decide, to, I'm going to do Sunday school simple, um, we would do very, very well. But we like to get in the weeds of all of the minutia of truth. And the more we get into those weeds, it leads down one of two paths. It either makes you proud or it makes you humble. And I know I said, I don't like the binary stuff. The reason I say it that way is it said it's a path that leads you down, right? So for those watching, um, you know, if I start at the middle of truth and then it leads you down a path of either humility or pride, it's a journey one direction or another. It's, it's truly a journey. And it might even be something where going away from the center out to the sides, maybe we kind of weave back toward the middle and weave out again. We weave toward the middle and we weave back out again. And so it's like this inverted type of mirrored um, stock market look maybe or something like that. But 
But I think there is a journey in one of two directions. True truth understood, it renders you um, like exposed before a good and holy God going, again, I just have to throw myself on your mercy. Versus the opposite of that is, um, I'm really certain I get it and everybody else has to get it too. And if not, I'm going to remind them of how displeased with them God is. Like there's this thing in there that has this this pride or arrogance or coldness attached to it toward those who are estranged from God and a certainty in there that they mistake conviction or they it's pride parading as conviction or it's, um, you know, um, callousness parading as certainty. And, and that seems to be where I go, it's off the rails at that point. That, that's not where this should take us at all, right? I think about like Isaiah, who is a prophet, but when he's before who God is, he's just absolutely undone. He knows he's a man that is unclean and even his words are unclean, right? He's a prophet whose words are unclean in comparison to the, the, the purity he sees before God. And, and that should be the defining tone of anybody that comes in contact with God and his truth is absolute humility. That maybe is my heart in this whole thing, right? As I try to link it all together and say, okay, so how does truth and deconstruction and John MacArthur and Josh Harris and the history of theology and my great fruit salad, how does it all come together? And I think it was that, awareness of and looking at the history of theology through the church, it always went bad when it was proud. It always went bad when it thought it had the the most pure format of it. It always went bad when it didn't steer it back to Jesus, but steered it into a system. Um, and you could see its rottenness in its tone, in its tone. And so it brings me to the story in Matthew chapter 21. So Jesus in typical fashion is dealing with religious individuals. I believe the religious individuals of the gospel are there. Why? Because we will list in that direction, right? So I want to be clear when we go, how could the Pharisees have done that? We're Pharisees. Like that is our bent every time. So we're most tempted to be that, not disbelieving people aren't tempted to be that. I mean, they can be that, right? They can do it with their own ideologies and worldviews and stuff like that. And there is a lot of legalism in all worldviews. Um, But to us, we need to take the warning. And so Jesus says this. He says, what do you think about this? There's a man who had two sons and he told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, no, I won't go. But then later he changed his mind and went away. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, sir, I will. But then the son, he didn't actually go do it. He says, which of these two boys obeyed his father? And they replied, the first. Then Jesus explained this meaning. He says, I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him while tax collectors and prostitutes, they did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. This story has been plaguing me in recent months because I was looking at it. I was trying to decide which person is more right or more wrong even um, as I thought about it and in, in, as I compared it to John MacArthur and Josh Harris, which instantly seems like, well, that's an obvious. John's right. Josh is wrong. But I was thinking about it as I've 
listened to some podcasts and, and interviews with with Josh. And he has left the Christian faith, right? He said, you know what? I can't stay within the boundary markers there. I, I can't in good conscience. I can't with honesty say that I'm a Christian because I'm prying away at it so much. I would be, he goes like, I can't call myself a progressive Christian. I don't want to even try to use the label because I don't want that to taint where it is I'm landing, right? I don't want to confuse people. So I'm just saying I'm out, which I actually really admire. I go, thank you for that. Because um, to say, hey, I'm just out doesn't breed confusion. It's clarity. That's that's a good thing. I actually think that clarity was a loving thing for many people who follow Josh and knew Josh and everything else. And so I appreciate that. But I'm thinking like which one of these two kind of gets it more because as I've listened to all the interviews, there's a great deal of humility that I hear in uh, Josh Harris. There's a great deal of openness. There's a great deal of compassion and empathy. There's a great deal of I've heard a lot of people. I've called the people a lot of names. I've done a lot of bad stuff. And so weirdly enough, in his deconstruction, it broke him of his pride, and now there is a humility in there and a compassion sound in there that I go, he sounds kind of a bit more like Jesus than he used to, even though he's not claiming to be a part of the Christian faith. Now, I don't know if he claims to still follow Jesus. There's some nuance in there that I don't understand, right? And I'm not trying to make a statement about he's okay spiritually, he's in, whatever. That's not not what I'm getting at here. I'm trying to... Think with the nuances for a second, but oh, here's a guy that's deconstructed, left it, but sounds a lot like the fruit of the spirit where I was listening to some of the, the things with John MacArthur and I go, here's a guy that I've always admired as a dude that really gets the truth, but I don't see a lot of Jesus or I'm not hearing a lot of the fruit of the spirit. Um, or even in that, I would hear a redefinition. Well, love is to say, state the truth. And I'm like, well, if my wife is only sensing my love when I state the truth and there's no other elements to how I love my wife, if I'm just like, here, I'm telling you, I'm just here to tell you the truth, honey. Here's the truth, right? Whether I liked your dinner or not, here's the truth. Whether I I like what you did or not, like that would not be love to her. She'd be like, you're an abusive person, you know? So I want to be cautious that when we think love is about telling people the truth, I'm like, yeah, love is about telling the truth to people the truth in a way that they know they're loved, Right. I mean, I was even thinking about that from listening to this Mars Hill podcast. Mark would often say, I'm telling you the truth because I love you as he would run people over with his bus. And so I'm like, man, we've we've even taken the idea of love and turned it into a justification to be harsh or cruel or cutting as though that's loving. And I go, no, you would not do that with your wife and kids. You would not do that with people you you genuinely care for. You would actually want to come alongside and help them get it. You wouldn't want to bludgeon them into it. So in the same way, like I said, I'm I'm listening to both John and Josh this week, and I'm like, one just sounds more humble than the other. One sounds more compassionate than the other. And the weird thing is, one has left the truth, the other defends the truth, which is like the older and younger sons in this story, right? Which one is like the, no, I'm not going to do it, but then is doing it versus, yes, I'm going to do it, but doesn't do it, right? Which two persons is in worse space. Is it the one that says, I fight for the truth, but it doesn't look a lot like Jesus, doesn't sound a lot like the spirit, or I've jettisoned the truth, but boy, I want to sound more like Jesus and more like the spirit. That's a conundrum, right? And I don't say that to render a decision that says, so John isn't really saved and Josh is really saved. I'm, I'm not, that's not my thing here. That I'm not using that 
I'm using this as a tool, not as a conclusion. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, I think John MacArthur's like a terrible guy and Josh Harris is so amazing. That's not my thing. My thing is just using the example that says it is strange. It is strange to me. And I think Jesus tells a story to sober us up a little bit to say, you know what? Um, there's more to this whole Christianity thing than just contending for accuracy, for doctrine, and for what we perceive to be truth. And in part, I say that because I'm not saying that there isn't truth. There's truth. And I'm not saying there isn't truth that can be perceived. I believe there's truth that can be perceived. Now, in that, based on the history of theology, based on the plethora of denominations today and little um, nuances from evangelical to evangelical to evangelical, Nobody's nailed this one, which is why there should be humility, right? Like, honestly, if you think you've got it most right of anybody in all of history and all of the global church, you should be very nervous before God, because I think God actually engineered, again, like I said, this book that is confusing and beautiful and challenging and bizarre all in one so that we are every day super dependent on him to navigate that book. Not so we can, again, slice it into pieces, reorganize it, and say, I've got it all figured out. So the design, again, goes back to humility. The design says, you know what? Um, I am going to uh, want to rely heavily on you to do this because I know I don't have it all figured out. I can't have it all figured out. I'm human. I'm finite. God, you're infinite. You're divine. And all the more, I just need you to guide me. And as I do that, I want to do that in a way that is compelling for other people. And I want to do that in a way that truly embodies and incarnates the life of Jesus and the values of Jesus, because that's what matters. And so from that, maybe my simple walk away in all of this is if we are people of the truth and you go, man, the truth matters, we must contend for the truth, then what the truth is going to look like is Jesus. What the truth is going to sound like is Jesus. What the truth is going to feel like as you interact with others is the fruit of the spirit. It's going to look like true love in 1 Corinthians 13. Like that's the outcome. And if it doesn't look like that and the world around us can't see that, then it's it's not the truth as designed that we're holding on to. It's the truth as redeployed in our own image. That's what we'll end up living out. And that's why I love the story that Jesus tells so much because he's telling the religious leaders who, again, I want to be clear here, did not have a low view of the Bible. They had an incredibly high view of the Bible. In fact, so high, they made sure they created other rules to reinforce how high they held the Bible. And Jesus says, yeah, but you're like the son that says, yeah, I love the truth. I love the truth. Just don't ask me to actually apply the truth. See, they defended it. They guarded it. They fought for it, right? They advocated it. They preached it. They taught Sunday school classes about it. But their disposition, their interaction with their world did not show it. Where the other one that says, no, I'm not doing that. That's crazy, man. That's crazy truth. I don't want to do that truth. That book's nuts. I'm not going to live according to that. But then they go and do it. They start living like what it actually calls them to do and to be and to, and to, to display in their world. See, I think this in part in my mind as I continue to work through evangelicalism and do we kill it or do we keep it or whatever else, 
I, I keep trying to figure out what's the core of the problem. And the core of the problem is an evangelical community that wants to fight about inerrancy and inspiration and the truthfulness of the Bible, but keeps not showing up to actually apply its true fruitfulness. Wants to fight a culture over every kind of ethical issue, over every kind of freedom of religion issue, you name it, but doesn't want to actually carry gear two miles. Doesn't always want to actually turn the other cheek. Doesn't actually want to come alongside broken people. They would rather want to protest how broken people, you know, whatever it is, want some kind of access to something or rights about something or fairness in something or whatever else. And and we go, no, 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 that's not the way we want to do it because we got to make sure we hold the line on these things. And and we're just then not known for the fruit of the spirit. We're not known for the disposition of Christ. We're not known as people who have the same heart for the world that God had, which the heart God had for the world is he so loved it, he self-sacrificed for it. He self-sacrificed because he loved the world. And I think if we start to embrace that, that the outcome of truth, the outcome of scripture is to feel like the spirit feels. And in that, the people will feel how the spirit feels in their lives through our lives. If it's that we begin to look like Jesus, who is the friend of sinners. And by that, it means they said, he's my friend. He cares for me. He hangs with me. He eats with me. He chills with me. He supports me, defends me, stands in the gap for me. Like until we're like that, until we're like the father who again is so, so wanting for the restoration of a world that he sends his own kid to go and love enemies. Until that is the case, we will not make an impact in culture except a negative one. We'll just keep ranting about how others don't follow the truth. We will become the ethical referees of society. Uh, we'll forget that Jesus didn't call us to uh, kind of stop bad behavior. He called us to see people made new. He called us to love others into a relationship with God, not to bludgeon, guilt, condemn others, because that's not leading anybody to God. It's not leading anybody to God because it doesn't even represent God well. It represents the antithesis of what God's all about. John 3, 16 and 17 is the most important thing in my mind because it gives the mission statement, not only that God loved that he sent, but in that he didn't want to condemn the world, but rather that the world would be saved through his son. That's verse 17. That is to be our desperation. So maybe here's my challenge for us as everyday missionaries. Stop fighting for the truth, right? Stop fighting for the truth. Start living the truth, right? Because the greatest way you can defend the truth is to display the truth of Christ, the truth of the spirit, the truth of the father. The greatest way you can prove the truth is true is that it's true in you, right? Imagine, right? Imagine if we weren't the grumblers and complainers. Imagine if we always were displaying joy. Imagine we were thankful in all circumstances. Imagine if we were really loving our neighbors at the cost of our own personal comfort, ease, freedom, or whatever. Like imagine if we actually thought the truth mattered and we did it, right? Imagine if we said, we're really going to try to be like Jesus. Like imagine that, you know? And I'm not saying we're not trying in some ways, but I'm saying, This should be the primary thing, the most important thing. 
I am certain that the greatest apologetic today is not making some great defense about how there's a maker that created the universe. I'm certain the greatest apologetic today is that a humble people are serving the world around them. And they're saying, I give my credit to God who gives me the strength to do all of these things. And I'm going to continue to do that. I'm going to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love my enemy. I'm going to reconcile when there's broken relationships. I'm going to give to the needy and I'm going to give to the poor and I'm going to pray all the time. And I'm going to take this book and I'm going to know this book, not so I can use this book as a weapon, but rather so I can use this book as a medicine for my life and your life. And I'm going to care about you in the same way that I care about me because Jesus cared for me when I didn't care about him. And that is the essence of the truth. That is how the truth sets you free. Because Paul tells us in Galatians, how, how does freedom play out? You don't use it for yourself and you don't use it against others. You use it to serve others in your life. See, to me, this is a powerful notion. So I know we've had this fruit salad. I've stirred it all together. Hopefully as I serve it up, you go, oh, I can tell it's a fruit salad and it can taste okay, right? But I hope we start to get this and embrace this and live this where what I'm advocating here is not a downplaying of the truth. What I'm advocating here is an upplaying of the truth. What I'm advocating here is the truth actually does what it's meant to do, that we would stop wanting to make it kind of this academic defensive thing. And instead we would make it a restorative, reparative, corrective, mobilizing and inspiring thing. And from that, it breeds dependence. It breeds the need for wisdom from God. It causes us to throw ourselves on him and say, I am, I am, I am so um, absent apart from you. I need you to do this in me every day, right? Every day. Because what our heart should be is that the world can see Jesus in us, right? That he sees They see Jesus in us. They feel Jesus in us. They feel the love and compassion and opportunity of Jesus. And they feel the the healer of Jesus in what we do. They feel the friend that comes alongside in what we do and say, like, all of that matters. All of that matters. And I admit my heart has been super broken in the last 18 months to two years as I've watched my evangelical community be very much not like Jesus in many ways. I don't mean that across the board. In fact, and I I'm, I'll always feel bad at this because I feel like then many of you who go to Redemption Church are listening and you're like, right, this is how Matt sees us. We're not ponying up. That's not it. There, there's so much of Redemption Church that I actually think gets this and owns this and believes this and wants to do this. Um, and, and we're all growing in that. And we're all sort of saying, God, help me more in that, you know? Um, but I, but I, as in a wholesale way, as I'm a, a pastor and a leader in the evangelical world of the United States, when I look around there, I just get brokenhearted, like just super brokenhearted. Cause so often I'm like, it just sounds like Christian privilege and entitlement and, and, you know, because, you know, Christianity by and large is a, you know, has a certain level of influence and power in the culture. It wants to hold that, which again, in the theology, uh, history of theology course that I was going through, that was always the same. Theology was a mechanism for control, power, and wealth. And I go, how tragic that that is so opposite Jesus. So, I mean, it's literally damnably opposite from Jesus. Theology should never lead to power, control, and wealth. Theology should lead to humility, graciousness, and this idea of generosity. Not holding power, but giving empowerment to those who don't have power. Like, that is the essence of Christianity. That is the essence of Christ over anity, not anity over Christ. 
And I believe if we look ourselves in the mirror, we embrace some of these truths, we do some of the hard work of prayer, dependence, fasting, humility, um, just an honesty of our limitations, and therefore we're driven to the vastness of God's potential in us, the more we do that, we will be unstoppable, compelling, and beautiful everyday missionaries.